Do you love the pasty tapes? Or do you just love me? Show my more. Well, in either case, or both, you can support me and this podcast and keep this project rolling by joining the Pasty Tapes Fan Club. As a member of the Pasty Tapes Fan Club, you'll receive some special sneak peeks, some fun goodies in the mail, and of course, my undying love and gratitude. To join the Pasty Tapes Fan Club, visit thepastytapes.com. Oh, hello! This is Blanche Debris, and you're listening to The Pasty Tapes, a burlesque podcast by Show My More, the steamiest Asian dumpling. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Pasty Tapes. I am your host, Show My More, the steamiest Asian dumpling. As I mentioned at the last episode, my production schedule for January got a little mixed up, so this episode is coming to you on a day that I don't normally drop episodes, but the great thing about podcasts is that you can listen to it whenever, so maybe you're listening to it the second it comes out, which for that I am super grateful, or maybe you're listening to this like five months after it drops, which for that I am also super grateful. Thank you so much for being here. On that note, if you are someone who's listening to it as it's coming out, I will be back on my regular rotation, my regular publishing schedule once we hit February, and you can expect to have episodes every other week-ish, probably on Thursdays. Let's see what happens. But thank you again for tuning in and sticking with me. Let's jump into today's episode. Today's episode is dropping a few days of their 13th burlesque anniversary, and I find that to be super exciting, and it was an honor to be able to sit down, talk to this person, and ask them a ton of nosy questions that I'm sure you're wondering about too. My guest today is someone I consider to be a burlesque influencer, a burlesque innovator. They are a costumer we have all seen before on and off stage. They're a teacher and just quite the delight to speak to. My guest today is Christina Manouge of Manouge Trois. Christina Manouge, thank you so much for being on this episode of The Pasty Tapes. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, I'm so happy that I'm talking to you. Okay. I'm just going to ask you a bunch of nosy questions, so let's jump into it. (laughs) Christina Manouche, I'm going to start by asking you what I ask basically everyone at the top of the episode. I want to know your burlesque origin story. I know that this question has been asked to you a bunch of times. You've talked about this. You actually wrote about this in your Patreon sometime this past year. You started costuming in 2008. Tell me about how you started and like what that first commission was like. In 2008, I was not really doing anything. (laughs) Um, I had quit my job like a a while back and I was going to school for uh, special effects makeup, which was a total departure from where I started in school because I originally wanted to be a fashion designer and I went through school for it and I got like three quarters of the way through and then decided, fuck this, I don't even like... (laughs) sewing and I'm not fashion design isn't for me I I just kind of like blew it up and said all right I need to look for something else I was training as a special effects makeup artist and one of my classmates knew Coco Framboise and just saw on Facebook that she like all of a sudden needed a bunch of new costumes because she had thrown out all of her like crappy costumes that she didn't like anymore and she was like I'm starting fresh this will make me start fresh And then she got like a bunch of gigs (laughs) immediately, right? So she needed somebody. 
and nobody she knew was available. So my friend, knowing my background, suggested me. And she did not ask me if she could do that. And if she did, I probably would have said no, because I had decided I didn't want to do that stuff. I don't mean burlesque. I mean, like, designing and making clothes. So, but I met with Coco anyway. And I friggin' loved her (laughs) immediately. She inspired me with everything that she said and everything she showed me. Like, she pulled out, you know, some books on burlesque. And I was like, shit, I didn't really know modern burlesque was a thing. Like... I grew up with it kind of in the background, um, you know, in movies that I watched. I watched a lot of like 1950s movies growing up. So I had seen little sort of glimpses of burlesque from sort of its heyday, but I didn't really know that it was a modern thing in the front of my mind. The meeting with, with Coco was awesome. And she immediately commissioned me to make her two or three costumes. And I went home and like whipped them off in a couple of weeks. And it was the greatest thing ever. (laughs) And when I went to bring them to her, she looked at them and she was like, she said something about caliber and, you know, this is amazing and stuff like that. And she just like encouraged me to keep going. She's like, you know, you have to keep going doing this. And she threw all of her friends at me, all of her like her less friends (laughs) at me. And before I knew it, I was like fully in the business. Like I did not stop from that day. I fell ass backwards into burlesque is really what I like to say. But that was the long version. At this point in your life, like you didn't even want to sew anymore. No. I mean, aside from just making things for myself, I was just like, I don't, I don't like it. Part of the thing with burlesque costuming, burlesque clothes, right, is that there's an element of magic to them, right? It's not just a skirt. It needs to be a skirt that moves, a skirt that can, like, rip off, like, interestingly. Like, when you were first getting started, tell me about, like, how you came to learn more about burlesque and what, you know, your early clients' needs were. The basis of what I learned right at the beginning was from Coco. Like, she pulled out a few books on burlesque, like what was available at the time. Of course, one of them was Dita Von Teese's, uh, um, the half fetish, half burlesque book. Um, and so I had kind of looked through and she basically primed me on what burlesque was in sort of a modern sense. And then I had sort of that background of these, or like you said, old timey <laughs> burlesque uh, information. So I think I just, from the beginning, I just kind of ran with that and I let my imagination decide what was appropriate. (laughs) Like I did not do a lot of research from the beginning. I really didn't. Um, And then as soon as I started making costumes, I started going to shows. So every client that I had, every new costume, uh, whenever it was debuted, I would go to the shows and actually help them get dressed. Uh, So that was a pretty sweet, like... (laughs) green room access type burlesque um, christening, one might say. Uh, But yeah, and then I was able to watch all of the different acts that were going on during that time through, like, I couldn't really afford to go to shows at the time, but I was allowed to because, you know, I was their sort of plus one (laughs) person to get backstage and, and help them get dressed. So it was, you know, useful to them because it was a new costume and it's calming to have somebody who isn't too hyper around helping you lace into your corset. And for me, because then I got, you know, 
experience with seeing a lot of live shows and also meeting other performers so that they knew who I was to look at me. Like all of my new, all of my first clients were in Toronto, of course. So it was all very local. And within the first year, they all kind of knew who I was to kind of spot me in a crowd. I think they did anyway. <laughs> That's so it's like kind of baptism by fire, jumping like full into burlesque almost, right? Like lots of hands-on hands-on learning with that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think it's the best way to do it. <laughs> Look around, see, gather what information you can, whether it's visually or by like actually trying to educate yourself and, you know, just turning into whatever you can imagine. Let's move backwards a little bit. So you mentioned you were in school for special effects makeup. Before then, you were in school for fashion design. Tell me about like growing up. Like, were you always really creative? Like, did you grow up sewing? I want to know how I guess this incredible skill set that you have like came to be? I was definitely always creative um, in the way that I am creative. Like I I don't don't really think of myself as creative in an artistic sense, in more of a like problem solving, thinking up new things type sense. You know what I mean? And like, let's be fair, the the artistic uh, creative concepts behind things, they don't come from me. They come from my clients. They come from the, the, you know, the burlesque artists, from the performers. And then I take that seed of an idea and I apply like everything that I can imagine to it. (laughs) But anyway, we were talking backwards. (laughs) We're talking about like growing up. So yeah, I I was creative in that way growing up. Definitely. Like I, I was always into, you know, whatever kind of arts came up. Um, But I was never a very artistically talented, creative person in that regard. I was just very creative, generally speaking. I always kind of had like a bit of a disdain for things that are the same, always the same. So that got reflected in um, my feelings about clothing as a, as like a tween. (laughs) My, I remember like grade eight, I went to back to school shopping, you know, where you have like a tiny amount of money. And so you get whatever you can. And I had got like the simplest clothing, but (laughs) because I couldn't afford to go to like fashion-y, I needed things that would work every day. But I, I got like three new outfits and I went and showed my best friend. And then she came back a week later and she got all of the same clothes that I bought. And then also some more like fashion-y stuff. And I was like, fuck off. (laughs) <laughs> you couldn't just let me have what I had about the exact same color sexing everything and I was just like that's it so from then on I started like thinking of ways that I could make my own clothes or make things that were unique to myself so like I started going to the Sally Ann and then like Value Village, whatever, and picking up old clothes or used stuff and then I would like piece it together with other things and sort of, you know, sew in bits here and there. And then I eventually got to building my own stuff, but I had no idea what I was doing aside from like figuring out how to put them together physically. Like I sewed everything that I, that I made for myself for the first like three or four years, I was building my own clothes. I stitched by hand and that took a lifetime. And then finally my mom was like, all right, we're going to get you a sewing machine. And uh, we picked out this like $60 
50 year old sewing machine and the brilliant gentleman who owned the store would not let me leave until he showed me how to use it because he asked my mom like do you know how to use sewing machines like are you going to be able to show her and she was like "Mm, once or twice I've sewn a costume like Halloween costumes and she was like no (laughs) sit down and he showed me how to use it and like troubleshooted a couple things screwed it up and made me figure out how to you know go forward when something was off and that was like a blessing because I went home and continued sewing, but I was able to do it so much faster. So like I would go home after school almost every day and sew myself something new. And of course, by this time I was working in uh, like fabric land, which is a, uh, do they have fabric land in the state? No, I'm guessing it's like a Joanne. I think it's a Canadian national. Yeah, it's like Joanne's. It's, it's the Canadian sort of national chain fabric store. Okay. Yeah. So I was working at a fabric store. So like I, every penny I made, I basically spent on fabric. So I had like a stash at home and I'd go home and I would make all this stuff. And eventually I took a few classes to figure out how to actually make things so that they didn't fall apart and <laughs> things like that. They're very important. Um, yeah, so that's and that's when I decided that I was going to be a fashion designer because at the time that was the only sort of thing that I knew to translate that into. It just seemed like the natural, like, you know, in high school, they're like, what are you interested in? I'm like, oh, I like making my own clothes. They're like, you're going to be a fashion designer. And I go, yeah, sure. <laughs> and that was kind of how I, how I approached it. That is such a juicy and beautiful background, <laughs> I think. Like from this man teaching you how to use your sewing machine to not wanting to look like everyone else and have your own clothes. Ugh. What a what a fabulous beginning. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, like you mentioned something that I love. And I think that maybe listeners, at least I see this in your styles and the costumes that I've seen you put out for different performers, right? A disdain for things that are always the same, especially in clothing, right? Mm-hmm. Your best friend got the same outfit. That was really annoying. You know, something that's exhausting is seeing the same costumes with the same tricks and the same reveals like over and over on stage. And I don't get that sense from you, right? There's like a, there's a keen like minutiae style, bold lines, something magical about it. But I would never say, oh, that's exactly the same as this other thing. I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) Oh, at least that's, yeah. I mean, like everything feels different. Like we know, I think... I've seen enough of your costumes across, you know, across the country in my time of performing up close and from far away. Like I know when something's a minuge, but I would never say, oh, so-and-so has the same exact thing as so-and-so. And right. I feel like that comes from perhaps like you watching your friend copy your clothes as a child. <laughs> like that would be so annoying. Yeah. That actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I never thought about it, but that is totally true. That probably does have a lot to do with how I approach um, all the new designs. Like even, you know, designs that are like every concept has been done before. Like as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing that's new or original, but it's about making it unique unique in some way that makes it special and exciting. And that's kind of how I apply my own creativity in every collaboration. It's just like, okay, well, how do I take this and make it something that is something I want to make and also something that is not the same as what I have already seen out there? Yeah. Even though it might be a corset, a bra, a pair of panties, you know, (laughs) it might have the same pieces, but it's not the same thing. 
Absolutely. Right. Right. Something you said earlier, um, you know, kind of at the start of answering this question is that your creative concepts come from the client, right? The artistic vision come from the client. Can you tell me more about like the collaborative process? Like what's that like? What's it like being, I guess, like the hands behind someone's vision? Generally, every every single commission that I do, um, like when it comes to doing the big exclusive costumes, it's the client brings me their idea, their concept, their theme, their color scheme. And kind of like, you know, if they don't tell me right off the bat, I'll ask them things like, what kind of feeling do you want to, you know, invoke with this? Like, what kind of music are you planning on using? What kind of movements do you want to make on stage? Like, what's your sort of in ambition with this, with this idea, with this costume, like what, what are you trying to do here? And also what things about their own body, they love the best and what they don't love the best because like everybody has something about their body that they hate, even though nobody else would pick that out. <laughs> like nobody else cares about your earlobes, but you know, maybe you want them hidden for some reason. Like, <laughs> Right, right. So, totally. you know, I always ask about that. And then, and then I will ask them for like, inspiration images. So for for like color or feeling or, you know, cool things that they that they've seen in other costumes that have have sort of caught their eye or inspired them based on that. And then I'll take all of that and try to get rid of anything that makes it like what other people have. <laughs> Um, and just think of like, okay, well, what, what can I add to this idea? What can I do with this to make it especially beautiful or like, especially flattering or like have this cool reveal in there? What, what would actually be useful for their performance? What can I build into that, that, you know, will allow them to wow the audience in a way that maybe they didn't even think of. And a lot of the times those those things that I add in don't really get used in the way that I intended, but I still enjoy trying to think them up and then instilling them into the costume in some way that I can be really excited about it. One of the magic pieces about burlesque to me is, you know, you can have a pretty gown, but you need someone to do something with it. Yes. And in your case, right, you're making something beautiful and you have someone that's going to do something with it. And I find that to be really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's the best part of costume designing for burlesque is the fact that something really cool needs to be done with it and it has to serve that purpose. Right. And to me, like trying to sort of think around that and solve that problem is is the best part and the best way that I can be creative. I think what I love about collaborating with costumers is being able to tell them what I want to do and have them like work with that, or at least have someone, you know, bounce that idea off with me, right? If I tell you that I want a form-fitting mermaid dress and my act is all floor work and splits, um, that's a challenge, (laughs) right? That's like probably not going to happen in the dress, or we might need to do some special magical engineering that may not exist to accomplish that. But do you Mm -hmm. have any specific, like burlesque-specific, challenges that you want to talk about? Is there anything specific to burlesque, I guess, that's especially challenging? It, it really is all about like the functionality of it and coming up with interesting reveals, I think, are the, are the things that make burlesque costuming a little bit more of a challenge in terms of like 
the physicality of it or, or the functionality of it, I suppose. It's making it into something that, like you said, is going to be used in some way and needs to serve the performance in some way. And I think that's a little bit different than, for instance, stage or, or like theater costumes where, you know, the performer needs to be able to wear it and, and be that character within it. But the costume doesn't need to change with them on stage. Nothing needs to happen to it aside from they need to be able to get out of it quickly when they get off stage. And it doesn't need to look cute when that happens either. <laughs> so <laughs> that's really the main challenge is making sure that, you know, it looks cute or sexy or, you know, aesthetically pleasing or magnificent or magical when each garment, each piece of that costume comes off and that it actually works with what kind of performance they're wanting to create. Do you have a favorite project or any favorite costume that you've made over the past few years? Yeah, I have, I have like a few. <laughs> they're all, they're always favorites. Most of the time, my favorite costume is the one I'm working on like right now because mm -hmm. I'm obsessed with it <laughs> and I'm just like all into it. If it's a costume that, especially in, in like recent years where I've chosen that that project myself like in for the first like uh eight or nine years of my business I would just allow people to book me and then when their time came they would tell me what they want kind of thing uh and then I would have to do it <laughs> or find a way to to make it work for like what I wanted to to do um but then eventually I figured out that you know, there was so much demand that I could actually just say, okay, give me your pitches first. And then I'm going to pick the ones that like excite me and go from there. And so in recent years, of course, every project that I've done has been like my favorite project because I've been so excited about doing it. And so like into it. And so I've done all of my best work. Uh, I think <laughs> in all, like most of those projects. So you mentioned, right. You're costuming for burlesque. We know you as a burlesque costumer. You started costuming with Coco, right? And it grew from there. And what I know, and I think what I've read about you in the past, and I think you've talked about this on your Patreon as well, is that you only costume for burlesque, right? Like you're not doing theater. You're not doing, at least like what my knowledge is, like you're strictly a burlesque costumer. Like, has that always yes. been the case since you started costuming? And like, why? Why just burlesque? <laughs> it ha it has always been the case. Um, I th I think two reasons really. One is that you know, like I said, Coco threw all of her friends at me as clients. So like fr right from the beginning, there was no shortage of work for me. I didn't make any money, <laughs> but I was constantly making costumes right from the beginning for every burlesque person I met who, you know, had two nickels to rub together and an idea. And that was really fun. Um, but the other reason being that, you know, when, again, when I met Coco, she inspired me, but it wasn't just her. It was the idea of burlesque being a thing that I could be a part of and the the whole approach of costuming for burlesque. Like I love the reason I decided that I didn't want to be a fashion designer was because the onus was on me to come up with all the ideas. 
you know, every season, just idea after idea, after idea, design, after design, after design. And I was just like, I'm not that creative. I'm not creative in that way. Like I need the concepts to come to me. (laughs) And burlesque is the perfect thing for that because every performer has their own idea of what they want to do. Of course, that they're the artists, they're making the acts, they're coming up with the moves, they're, you know, doing all of it, except for sometimes the costume, uh, sometimes the music, whatever. Um, but the prospect of me not having to come up with all of the ideas and me being able to, you know, have somebody tell me an idea and have that spark of an idea within my own creative mind is so friggin' satisfying that I never wanted to look elsewhere for, for that. It, it just like, it fit so well, burlesque fits so well into what my talents are and how my brain works and just everything that I find exciting. Did you ever want to be a performer? No, never. Did you ever feel like that's something you had to do at any point to like understand the costuming side of it? No, not at all. <laughs> um, I have a good, I have a really good imagination when it comes to the physicality of things. Um, and also like I, I tend to kind of use myself as a model when I'm figuring things out, when I'm working out like how something will work, if it will work, how it will look, how it will fit. Um, I use my own body to help me with that. But I never wanted to perform. I never wanted to be like the center of attention. I have no, I have no interest in that. I don't, I'm the exact opposite of an exhibitionist. (laughs) It just doesn't suit me at all. So it's just never something that I needed to look into for myself. Right. And obviously that's worked out. Like, did you ever receive any like pushback or criticism from that? You know, I, I know, right. Like we don't need you know, you don't need to do this thing to be able to do this other thing. But was that ever any like criticism that you received early in your career in burlesque that like, oh, well, she's not a costume or she's not a performer. How would she know? No, uh, I I don't know if people might have said that behind my back or anything. Like it's possible that that entered someone's mind. Um, but no one has ever said that to me or questioned it really, as far as I know. Um, it's always just been like, whoa, she's doing this thing and it's better than I can make for myself. That's what I want. Yeah. And like, you know, the, the work speaks for itself, right? Yeah. I mean, like who, who cares where it comes from? And I mean, when, it, when it comes right down to it, like in our capitalist consumerist society, we don't really care where anything comes from except for in sort of when our sort of conscience comes into play. And then, <laughs> then we start thinking about it, but like historically, in the last, you know, 100 years, we don't give a shit who made the thing or about them or what what they do or why, why they're doing it. You know, we just want to know that it's the best that we can get our hands on. And, you know, maybe that we're getting a deal. I don't know about the last part <laughs> in regards to an usage plot. But, you know, I, I think that quality is obviously worth paying for. Um, and if you want quality, then come to me. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I want to, I want to, I guess in my like line of nosy questioning, that's a question that I have for you, right? Like quality is worth paying for. Obviously you put out a stellar quality product, like time and time again, everything I've seen of yours has been beautiful, like literally inside and out. Okay. I have another nosy question for you then. 
Like, is it sustainable? Has it been sustainable for you to only work with burlesque? And I guess this is more of a question, a nosy question about your like philosophy on quality and pricing. And you've talked about this on your Patreon and I want to hear you dig into it a little bit more. It it can be. I mean, obviously I have gotten to the point where it is sustainable. Um, I've been doing this for uh, 13 years now or in, on January 28th, it'll be 13 years since my very first commission with Coco. And it, it took me a really, really long time to, you know, first of all, to the first thing you have to do, of course, is build up a reputation so that people understand that your stuff is worth the money, right? Like is, is worthy of purchasing in the first place that they can trust you with that commission and that you'll come up with something that they'll be proud to wear and, you know, happy to pay for. But the other half of that is the hardest part to get to, which is pricing things appropriately. It's the worst thing you can do to yourself, um, trying to price something based on what you think you would pay for it, as opposed to what is actually a fair price for your services and everything that you're putting into it. They're completely separate and unrelated things. And really, when it comes to pricing, if you're thinking of it as a consumer, you're thinking of it uh, from the perspective of somebody who has no fucking clue what it takes to make whatever it is you're making. So you can't do that to yourself. As a costumer, you got to sit down and really be honest with yourself and say, okay, you know, I need to charge for materials, for the time I spend like curating this, for the design I'm making for the person, for like uh, the actual labor that goes into every step and every stage of producing that costume and embellishing it or like what all of the things that are involved. It's incredibly labor intensive and creatively draining to create a really cool burlesque costume or a really cool ensemble of any kind. So that needs to be reflected in what you're charging for it as much as possible. In the beginning, when you're just building up a reputation, obviously that doesn't apply because you're never going to convince somebody to spend, you know, $5,000 on a costume if you haven't proven yourself and they aren't just Jones in for you, not anybody else, but you to make something for them. So they're never going to be convinced to, you know, make that investment, spend that money, appreciate fully what you have to offer. And that's, that's a hard thing to do for anybody in our society, especially is to be able to like truly appreciate and value something enough to put the real price of it on that and actually be willing to pay it. Never mind being able to afford it, but actually be willing to, if you had that money, pay it. I think what I love about your work and like what I've seen of you and how open you've been and showing the process is you're really, really clear in like the amount of labor and like, you know, how many times you've had to try something and scrap it and try again or when you do something that's made with beaded fringe, you're reinforcing every single 
thread. Mm -hmm. And that's not just let me throw some dots in there. Like sometimes you're restringing actual beads. In some costumes I've seen of yours, you've made the beaded fringe. I think that the pricing that you have like reflects the amount of work and love and like literal years of experience behind it. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, I, I do a hundred percent believe that the price that I charge for anything, whether it be like a pair of pasties up to, you know, an enormous, you know, 20,000 layer costume. (laughs) Like I truly believe that the price that I put on it is a fair one. I'm not, you know, out there to try and extract the most money I can from anybody. I'm not that type of person. Like I'm, I live in a capitalist society, but I would never consider myself a capitalist in that way. Like I'm not just around to like make money. What I want to do is to survive, to thrive, to be happy and comfortable in my life. And I think that everybody deserves that. And so allowing myself to price things so that I can actually achieve that is like, it's like an act of (laughs) self-love and it's trying to set an example for other people too, for other costumers and also for performers to be like, yeah, she deserves the right amount of money. I deserve the right amount of money. I need to charge, you know, appropriate sums for my, for my performances and for my time you know, it's 50 bucks is bullshit. You know, like, unless you're just starting, you need to be able to dictate your prices based on your own value and the value that you hold uh, within your yourself and your experience. I think another question that I have for you is around accessibility. Not everyone can afford the the costumes that you make, whether it is just a pair of pasties or one piece of a 20 layer costume or, you know, the whole ass, the whole ass look itself. Right. We all know that we can all recognize that. Um, Something that you say in your Patreon though, in like the bio is like, you know, teaching people about what it is that you do and like some of the tips and tricks that you have. Tell me more a little bit about like the philosophy behind the Patreon. Like you give away a ton of things that I would consider being secrets. I don't know if that's like the right way to phrase it. (laughs) My question for you is like, why did you decide to have this Patreon, which in my opinion is like really affordable for the amount of information for like the sheer volume of content that you put out? Like you post a ton on there. Why did you choose to do that? Like, why are you choosing to give up like things that maybe some other people would hold a little like closer to their chest and keep as like a secret. Well, I mean, it's, it's complicated. (laughs) Like, firstly, I I'm not giving it away. You know, people pay for access. It might not be a large sum, but it all adds up. So it's, it's beneficial for me financially. It's responsible financially for me to do uh, Patreon and, and to have that. But Behind that, like the reason I wanted to do it in the first place is because like not everyone can afford to hire me. And even if they could, I'm only one person. Like I can only do so many things. I can only make so much uh, in terms of product. And I refuse to do what, you know, most people would do in my scenario, which is to hire on help. And, you know, I've, I've tried having apprentices uh, over the years, a couple of times, and they've never really worked out in the way that I wanted them to. Like I, ha- I have a very altruistic outlook on things in general, 
So my outlook on apprenticeship was the same, right? Like, you know, we're both giving to each other. It, it benefits, it's supposed to be mutually beneficial. But anyway, it, apprenticeship never really worked out for me and I didn't like it. And the last apprenticeship that I had, although it was the best one that I, that I had uh, had, best relationship that I've had um, as an apprentice mentor type scenario, it left me feeling that same old feeling, which was like, that should have been more satisfying. But I don't think either of us are satisfied with like what we ended up with or how it worked out. So, you know, that kind of tipped the scales a little bit for me in terms of like taking it on to Patreon and being like, look, no, I'm throwing this down. I'm going to teach everybody. Everybody who wants to learn from me can, can learn from me. I really enjoy teaching and sharing. Like I wouldn't say I'm the best teacher, but I think I'm good at, at explaining things in a way that makes logical sense. And that works for a lot of people. And I like sharing what I have with people. Like I like being able to share um, what I've learned and inspire somebody else to like improve on what they've got and sort of strive towards like my, I've always been a perfectionist in some way, but like, I don't really look at it as, I don't look at perfectionism as like trying to be perfect. I look at it as like, always doing your best, but then also always trying to improve on what your best is, right? Like always striving forward, always trying to go like, oh, that was great. I did a great job on that. How can I make it better next time? You know, never kind of resting on your laurels. It's only natural to go on and try to help other people improve on their costuming because although I'm not there yet, I will never be done improving on my own skills, like never, ever, ever, unless I stop doing them entirely, in which case that'll be the end. Right. Like I'll never, I never stop improving. I never stop trying to improve. And I want to help other people do that too. So like when it comes to sharing secrets and stuff, I kind of have like a back catalog in my mind of like things that I want to keep to myself. And that catalog changes all the time. (laughs) And I don't mean like I want to take things back. I mean, like, I kind of, you know, for instance, uh, when I first started Patreon, I was like, okay, I'm not going to show people how to like, because I did ask people like, what do you want to learn from me? If I do this, what kind of tips do you want? And some of them were things like, you know, how do you do your one handed quick release clasp? And I was like, no, (laughs) I'm not going to share that. And then, you know, I think only a couple months in, I was like, okay, I'm going to share this now because I just, you know, I held on to it for a little while and then I released it. I let it go and I decided it wasn't important for me to to keep that to myself. And then it was going to be more beneficial for other people to learn it or learn from it. Uh, like, I also think that when you're learning something, when you sign on to, or you, when, when you go to a class or watch a tutorial, it's not always what the person is teaching that you're actually learning. Like there's always some little tidbit in there that is even more useful or like sparks something in your imagination or in your mind that kind of connects dots that you didn't previously know were connectable. And it kind of gets your mind spinning on other things. Like everything I learn, I try to kind of connect it in my mind and apply it to everything else I've ever learned, basically. 
And it's, it seems like overwhelming to say that out loud, but that is how I assimilate new information. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I just think that there's nothing wrong with sharing the information you have with others. I think it's more important to encourage other makers and try to set the example that I, I want to see going forward. Like I want peop- other people to share their skills too. I want other people to help within the community to help each other and not be so kind of closed off about that. And, you know, everybody has a right to hold on to whatever they want to in terms of their own skills and information, but it is so freeing to actually share it instead. And it's so much more satisfying rather than hold on to something and be like, this is mine. No one else will ever have it. It's so much more satisfying to implant that in someone else and then see what they do with it. Ooh, okay. I love this, right? There's a very practical answer, right? (laughs) You can't, you can't make everyone's underwear. Like that's like, that's not possible. The demand that's out there. Right. And that's how you burn out all of that. And then there's, I, love this juicier, deeper answer of sharing this knowledge. As we like wrap up here, like I'm going to quote something that you said in an interview on 21stCenturyBurlesque.com. In 2014, Joe Weldon interviewed you and she asked the question of like, what would you like to experience in your creativity or business in the future? Like whether that's short or long-term. And I'm going to quote some of this and chop it up, but this is what you said back then what is this, like almost six, seven years ago now, Um, you said, my ultimate wish is for a minutia to warrant historical recognition. I hope to be referred to as someone who made notable creative contributions and perhaps was even integral to the growth and quality of burlesque in her time. And then you continue on to say, my sincere hope is that by my own example, I can inspire others and to help change the tide within our little burlesque world. We all need to pull together. We deserve respect and fair pay and no one will give it to us unless we insist on it. I just, Oh my God, I am so great. (laughs) You are great. Okay. That is like so fucking brilliant. That was, wow, I'm really impressed with past me. <laughs> In my doing like of research with you, like I got to the end of this interview that was done, you know, a while ago, right? Like a first graders lifetime ago in, <laughs> in context of someone needed that for some reason. Time is weird. <laughs> I think that you did this, right? I think like if we look up some really notable burlesque acts, right? Historical recognition, right? Like you are on your work is on some of like the most notable names in burlesque, right? Your work is coveted. Like your work is like almost a status symbol, like to an extent. Right. But I just want to like emphasize and say that, like, I do think that Manoush contributes and has been contributing and will continue to contribute to the growth and quality of burlesque because of like the kind of stuff that you're putting out. Right. It's not just this, here's five slots every two years of costumes that I will, you know, I'll consider your commission. It's Mm -hmm. here's, you know, X number of videos, like literally hundreds of videos that you've put out to teach people how to be better burlesque costumers. That's so funny too, because I think in 2014, I, I maybe had just started expanding my business into like 
like from the sort of, I have this many slots per year. And then I, I maybe hadn't even opened my Etsy shop then, right? Like I didn't even have a made to order line or maybe I just started it. Yeah. Like, wow. I, I have no idea. I really set my intentions there and I had no idea how thoroughly like I aimed for that shit. <laughs> with Like everything I've done since then, I'm very impressed with past me. <laughs> this is, you know, above all, this is like a true testament of like, say what you want and put it out in the world, put it out there in the world, because like, you're right, you know, you'll probably do it. I think that you've, I think that you've done all of the things that you mentioned in this interview, right? Like historical recognition. I think, you know, you're there, you're contributing to the quality of burlesque. Like in here, you also mentioned. We'll only know for sure on the historical recognition, if we come back after death and then. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Someone will, someone will check that. Someone will go to your grave, you know, in a thousand years and be like, you did it. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, Another thing that you mentioned is like, I want to make a profit. You know, I I want to be able to like, you know, live and it's like, yeah, that's fair. We talked about that. Right. Yeah. (laughs) With the landscape of burlesque changing so much with this like wild 2020 that you've had, what I guess like is next? What's like the next thing that you want? What's your next, I guess, like 2014 uh, interview juicy quote that we can ask you about in seven years? (laughs) Oh gosh, I don't know. I just want to keep doing it. I want to keep on doing it. I want to see like where Patreon or, you know, if Patreon closes up shop tomorrow, uh, where the whole online teaching thing can go. I really enjoy that. Um, and of course, like the other aspects of my business, the actual aspects of Manishatois, um, obviously I want to keep that going too, but really like my ultimate goal for the future, this is my intention setting thing. Let's see what, let's see what will happen. Okay. (laughs) I want to, I want to write at least one book. That's my intention. I started thinking seriously about writing a book, which is something I've wanted to do since 2010. I was teaching Corsets 101 uh, out of my apartment and I wrote like a little text booklet for it, like 20, 30 pages, which I still have in my closet and probably five people in the world might still have tucked in their closet somewhere from taking that class from me. But at the time I was like, I want to turn this into a full textbook. Like I had already had that seed in my mind. Like I need to do this whole thing, which is hilarious because I was only, the first course that I ever made was for Coco Framboise. <laughs> so it's not like I was, you know, a seasoned professional at it already, <laughs> but I felt like I was, you know, I had learned enough about it in order to be able to relay that information to people. And I was relaying it, but I wanted to fully do it in a textbook. <laughs> but anyway, so fast forward <laughs> 2020 and I'm thinking, okay, now's the time to start planning this book. Anyway, the book is not happening 2021 now because my my fears were not, you know, backed up by reality. And in the end, my 2021 is just as booked as as every other year in my career has been. So that's not going to happen. But I believe in 2022, <laughs> it's going to be my year. <laughs> and I think I might set that time aside to start truly working on that and, and making that my real, my real goal for the future. I will still do everything else that I'm already doing, but I'll just whittle it down a little bit in order to start focusing on that. 
Oh, so the other thing I should tell you about is the fact that uh, if anybody's been following me or like of my or my work, not Patreon, but like everything else I do, um, they've probably have noticed that I have not had an Etsy shop for over a year. Right. You haven't. That's right. Yeah. I originally closed it in like 2019 in September and then I reopened it in January and then I got slammed with orders and then I had to close it like three weeks later and I was like ah and it took me about four months to fill all those orders of course I told everyone in advance if they were getting their stuff late and not a monster right right anyway um and then the rest of the year has just been like you know surviving coping building costumes doing patreon you know taking orders on the side but just not having a shop so I could go on like that forever, but I decided I needed to give myself a hard deadline for when my store was going to be open. And when I originally closed my shop on Etsy, I actually ended up then going back a few weeks later, I think, and closing it permanently. The shop is still there, but it's just um, like it's in vacation mode and it'll point you towards my website, which is where my new shop will be. (laughs) The real grand reopening or opening of my online shop on minutiatroit.com is going to happen on January 28th, which is the 13th anniversary of Minutiatroit. So it's a day to celebrate. Okay. Calendars marked January 28th. (laughs) Minutiatroit shop reopening, relaunching. I've been actually working on setting up the shop over the past week and I have so many more new things to, to put up than I thought I did. So people should be excited to see what the new stuff is going to be, hopefully. I hope everyone will like it. I'm really pumped about making uh, some new designs. Um, so, yeah, hopefully it will go over well. And I also won't be overwhelmed by too many orders all at once. Everybody, please be kind. Don't order all the things in one go. <laughs> I don't want to be buried. <laughs> so 13th anniversary of Minutia Trois, January 28th. We're celebrating that with the launch, the relaunch of Minutiatois.com with its shop on there. Yay. But you also have another big anniversary coming up. It is the second anniversary in February of Tips on Tap, which is my favorite part about your Patreon. Do you want to talk about this like other thing that you have going on, this other thing that we're celebrating for you? Yes, of course I do. Okay, so Patreon is the best thing that has ever happened to me, basically. February 1st, 2019 (laughs) is when it started. So we will be celebrating that. I'm very excited because I'll have two years worth of content, but also going into our third year, which is like my favorite number of all time. And for some reason, I'm very excited about anything that has a number three in it. So, (laughs) but... To celebrate the second anniversary, I'm going to do a promo for the first two weeks of February where you can get roughly two months off of a full year subscription. So you can actually subscribe annually on Patreon now. So if you sign up for an annual subscription, it'll be 16% off, which is the same as about two months, like give or take 0.05% or something like that. But yeah, so it's a sweet deal. Um, and hopefully people will take advantage of that. And if not, that's okay. You can just sign up normally too. I love any kind of support anyone wants to throw my way in that regard. And also you never regret it really. (laughs) 13th 
there's so much content on there and I think it's very valuable. So I think it's worthwhile looking at. I think so too. Okay. Well, I'll make sure I put the links in the, in the show notes for your Patreon and obviously your links for your website and your newly launched shop. Um, Christina Manoj, as we wrap up this episode of the Pacey Tapes, is there anywhere else on the internet or anything else that you want to plug for our listeners? Yes, of course. You can always follow me on Instagram. It's at Um, You'll have to look up how to spell that. But if you type it randomly in Google, it usually comes up with the proper spelling. So <laughs> easy to find. Christina Manouche, thank you so much for being on this episode of the Pacey Tapes. It was a delight to speak with you, ask you some questions about your background, some nosy questions, and then get the inside scoop on your website and on your Patreon. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. It has been an absolute joy. Thanks again, Christina. As we mentioned at the close of that interview, January 28th, which is this Thursday, depending on when you're listening to this episode, January 28th is the 13th anniversary of Menuja Trois. To celebrate along with Christina Menuj, go visit menujatois.com. I'll link that down in the show notes. Check out the web store and click around. And why don't you like just meditate on cool shit you want her to make for you one day? To celebrate another milestone, Christina is offering a special deal on her Patreon, which I find to be really insightful and really entertaining, and I am garbage at sewing, but I have learned so much just from watching it. I will, again, link that in the show notes. I feel like I learned a ton about Christina Manouge, which I didn't know before, and I also asked her a ton of nosy questions. So if you want to give me feedback, let me know your reaction to this episode, Send me a message on the Pasty Tapes hotline. You can leave a voicemail or send a text to 1530-PASTIES. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Pasty Tapes. I am your host, Show My More, the steamiest Asian dumpling. And you can find me across the internet at Show My More. As I mentioned, we will come back to a regular every other week-ish, Thursdays-ish schedule of the Pasty Tapes. I have so much in store for you for 2021. It's going to be awesome. Special thanks to the members of the Pacey Tapes fan club who have made this episode and this podcast possible. Much love to Violet Passion, Kyle H., the man with the hat, TC, Big Moody Judy, Kits and Sass, Faye Havoc, Madame Ophelia Red, Amethyst Howell, Kinetic Kristen, Betty Beware, Muff Jones, Rosalie Bloom, Fufu Kaboom, Kitty LaRoyal, Cece Bombay, Abby Dandy, Aria Delanoche, Frisky Business, Victoria Dudley, and Tony Tabasco. Thanks again for tuning into this episode of the Pacey Tapes, and I will catch you in a couple of weeks.